Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Coming at you from day one of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Day one, we've been open for two hours. Bird Dog Parade just ended a little bit ago, and I still have a voice. So we got uh, a terrific episode of On the Wing podcast lined up. Uh, first of all, Matt Morlock, a co-worker, but more importantly, a buddy, guy that's been on the podcast a number of times. He's the Pheasants Forever State Coordinator for the state of South Dakota. You'll recognize uh, Matt when I say he's the guy with the story about a bird dog named Bob. The dog named Bob. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and for folks, if you uh, if you don't know, don't know, name your dog Bob, because it's just going to confuse me when we hunt together. Yeah. <laughs> Google, Google the story. He'll, he'll show up. Because if you it. yell at your dog, I'm going to think you're yelling at me. <laughs> and you know what? You listen better than that dog did. <laughs> That's true. And uh, our featured guest, uh, you you definitely have heard his name, unless you've been living under a rock, Doug Duran. Uh, a name you recognize from Meat Eater, television shows, podcasts, uh, buddy with Steven Rinella, buddy with Patrick Durkin, Ryan Callahan. Um, he's been on podcasts with Joe Rogan, and, and he's been to multiple National Pheasant Fests and Quail Classic. And what, what number is this for you? I think this is number five. No kidding. Number five, yeah. we got to get you a punch card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> free coffee or something. Like that, right? Press room. Yeah, that's the secret. The pre- you go to the press room and you just act like you're they're supposed to be there. You get free coffee. Oh, that, I'm real good at that. Yeah. That's that's the secret you learn. Yeah, they have the good stuff in there. Oh, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. Nothing <laughs> but the best for Bob. It's correct. I don't even drink coffee. A mainline Mountain Dew right now. Um, Doug, you're owner of uh, Lone Oak Interests, LLC, specializing in site and land management consulting and contracting services throughout Wisconsin and particularly the Driftless area of Wisconsin. And you manage the Dern Family Farm near Casanova, Wisconsin. Um, And that's where I want to put the focus on, at least in the beginning, is you've been at Pheasant Fest five years in a row, and it's you're buddies with a lot of people here, yeah. but that isn't the, the reason. You're talking on our habitat stage because your business and your passion in life is about wildlife habitat, and that intersects with our organization really intimately. Um, folks that have seen you or, or listened to you on the Meat Eater um, brand of media channels have seen and, and witnessed that but let's talk you know about your habitat um on the farm from a conservation perspective right out of the gates tell us a little bit about your farm like what you do from a production perspective but then we'll get into conservation and habitat well I, I'm happy to talk about that um i guess if i would say something about meat eater and that is i am certainly the least accomplished hunter of that group um the majority and i mean 98 percent of the hunting that i've done Mm. has been on that farm or in the immediate area of our farm in the driftless area um you see uh, i guess i've been on one show where we went to alaska caribou hunting that was essentially the third 
away from the farm hunt and what I mean out of state hunt that I had done in my life. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So oh. it's not, it's not, um, so broad hint out there for Matt, because I understand he has some pretty good pheasant uh, ground. <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to say, we're fixing that this fall. Yeah. He's, he's coming over. And yeah, because my perspective is you, you're hardcore hunter and chasing things all over, you know, here and yonder. But it's mainly, which, which is interesting, right? Because it, it, you're probably like a lot of folks where you hunt your own property. Right. I, and, I, and I would say that I know a awful lot about a very small area Mm -hmm. you know and that is the driftless area Mm -hmm. of 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 wisconsin but also southeast minnesota and north so for folks so obviously our organization pheasants forever and quail forever across the country minnesota wisconsin iowa know what driftless means but for folks that are listening from a quail forever chapter in georgia what's that mean so the driftless area is uh that area of southwest wisconsin uh actually steve uh Steve uh, Ranella described it as a buck, belt buckle on the Midwest. Mm. So it's an area where the glaciers did not hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's unglaciated or it's uh, absent of great glacial drift, absent of glacial drift. Mm. So um, hence the name Driftless. It mm-hmm. sounds way more exotic than what it is. But it's really interesting because it was a, a lake bottom. And when the glaciers came down from the north and east, they stopped to the north and east of us, mm-hmm. and there were four different um, uh, glaciers, and uh, they formed the Wisconsin River that sort of starts in the north and circles around, and then it heads straight west and dumps into the Mississippi, and it's sort of that area um, in, our, in our area north of that. So uh, typically, uh, when I was a young man, it was very small dairy farms. Uh, like we farmed, uh, we had 40 milk cows, hmm. um, 400 acres, 240 acres of woods, um, uh, 60 acres of pasture and 100 acres tillable. Hmm. Um, the 240 acres of woods was the reason I, the land was originally purchased by my great grandfather, because he was a lumberman and had a sawmill about a mile away, on, uh, was on it's ironically enough called Duran Road. And I always wondered. Um, I wish he was still around so I could ask him this. If if he saw the name of the road and said, "Well, let's put our sawmill there," or yeah. name the road after the sawmill was put there. <laughs> anyway. Um, so it's about a mile away, and so, um, and the, the original farmstead was where the mill was. So this land stayed in the family. It's going to be uh, 120 years coming up. Okay, and you talked about hunting that property. Um, I know I've seen you hunt on, you know, hunt whitetail. That's been the primary focus of the media, and I've seen you hunt um, and Stephen uh, rabbits and squirrels. Right. Um, fe- you got pheasants on the property. Um, we have the occasional pheasant. Okay. Um, working on habitat, the 100 acres tillable is all in uh, CRP. Okay. Um, 18 acres of that is uh, surrogate grassland, so, uh-huh. um, you know, prairie grasses. And um, so we have had, we we're, believe in that mantra of, of build it and they will come. Sure. Um, and so we have been seeing some pheasants around. Um, when I was, a, I say this all the time, when I was a kid, uh, we had rough grouse around. But okay. we the habitat for rough grouse has... Um, is not there anymore, okay. and uh, we we need it on a bigger scale than just on a 400-acre sure. farm. Um, although we our management has been, um, uh, we've moved towards uh, management that would encourage uh, grouse if they if they were around. Um, we have woodcock go through, of course. Yeah. Um, we hunt uh, wood ducks, turkeys. Um, yeah, turkey oh, and, and wild turkeys are. You know, that's that's coming up. We're all excited mm-hmm. about turkey season. What about uh, bobwhites? 
when I was a kid, yeah. okay, this is we're going to start a drinking game or something. Every time, <laughs> every time that Doug says when I was a kid, you have to take a drink, and yeah, um, I'll try. I'll try not to say that anymore. But um, we had Bob White Quail when when uh, fifty years ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, I, I think again, habitat, habitat, habitat. Mm-hmm. A lot of things have changed in that period of time. In those days, uh, I can remember you'd hit a raccoon or somebody would hit a raccoon on the road. You'd pick that thing up, take it in the back of the truck, and take it over to the fur buyer because you could get 20 or 25 mm, bucks right. for it. And you didn't even have to skin it. Now they're, you know, they're worthless right. Um, right. from that perspective. And, we, and, and, and that, you know, we all know that they're real hard on, on ground-nesting birds. Mm-hmm. Um, turkeys uh, were, not exist- were, were not in our area when, you know, in those days. And um, so... It's been about 30 years, I guess, that turkeys were reintroduced. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I mean, it's been yeah. fantastic. We have an incredible turkey population. But it's dramatically different habitat than what once existed when you had quail. Yeah, that, exactly. That, that, so slow, th- that slow creep, they call it. Well, it, 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 nothing's changed. Yeah. Well, nothing's changed, but it's grown up now. And then. And that really is it, isn't it? That yep. you, I, I take a tour around our property or our area and you know there used to be you went there were those that transition time where uh we well let's get the cattle out of the woods and let's get the cattle out of those marginal areas and once they did then brush started coming back into that but now that's those areas are now bigger trees Mm -hmm. yeah growing up so i i was lucky i guess to grow up in that period of time when we rough when i was in high school rough grouse hunting was fantastic you know um and uh, you know we always we always killed woodcock when they were passing through, um, but um, very di- very very different now. Yeah, you think about that when you're a kid, rough grouse, some bobwhite quail. There aren't that many places in the country where those two species intersect. No. Yeah, I know that we were on the. Correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. I'm sure you will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we're on the northern edge of the bobwhite sure, habitat yep. anyway. So, um, and, and the s- and southern edge of the rough grouse. Right. So sort of that in between. Mm-hmm. So when everything was, you know, was was right, we, we had that. Um, there used to be a lot more um, clear cutting of aspen. Mm-hmm. So, right. of course, that would, grouse would do well mm-hmm. with that. Um, and aspen is sort of now not a very sought after wood we right. don't the pulp right. we don't right. really have a pulp opportunity and um land is managed now um a little bit differently um uh a lot of properties have that were bigger properties have been broken up so mm. we parcelize the landscape and fractionalize the, the habitat as well um and and you know there's some of that downside of that but there's it's also there's a lot of positives mm. to that kind of thing conservation positives mm. um of the changes in land ownership yeah i i, I think about that intersection with rough grouse and in and, and bobwhites for a little longer like there's um places in new york and pennsylvania right that they could probably intersect but it's one of the things that i think about as a midwest kid the magic of the driftless area because of iowa and you know in, in southern southeastern minnesota mm-hmm. um there's actually a little bit better grouse population still hanging on there but like you say it's the northern edge of the the quail range mm-hmm. and right. there's not that many of them there yeah you can usually win a trivia contest when you talk about wisconsin or south dakota having bobwhite quail right right because right. right. a lot of people don't realize that there's they quail don't. in south dakota there is it they show they shoot about 15, 10 or 15 a year oh there's, <laughs> more than that. there's more than that there's more than that they do yeah. but the people that know where they're at mm-hmm. and know about them 
tend to not talk about it. Yeah. So it just doesn't get out that there's quail in both those states. Yeah. Hmm. Um, your property, you talked about having some dairy cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about having some land in CRP. Tell me a little bit more about your property. Well, uh, actually, we don't have dairy cattle anymore. Oh, okay. Um, 1988 was the last time a cow was milked in that barn. Huh. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one of the relics on the wall of the old farmhouse is the last uh, ticket from when they came and picked mm-hmm. up the milk. Um, and so uh, anybody else? Here's a trivia question for Matt. What else started in the late eight, uh, the 1980s? Like 88 was uh, the first yeah, or second th- year? Maybe 85 uh, is what you're – December 23rd, 1985? Conservation Reserve Program? Uh, boy, well, I – Okay. I was so, thinking you were going with the founding of pheasants forever, but oh, that was uh, April. God, we all three went the wrong direction. <laughs> <different directions. laughs> 1982. That was 82. 82. Well, uh, yeah. So CRP was Brewers uh, were in the World Series <laughs> in 82. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> do we want to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else happened Lost in to the, the Cardinals? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. They did. Um, CRP was a fairly new uh, program at, mm-hmm. at that time, and uh, our entire farm, the cropland, at that time 114 acres, went into CRP. Um, the sale of the cattle um, cleared the debt that mm. was left on the farm, mm. yep. and uh, my the farm parents, crisis, yeah, yeah okay. and uh, uh, and my my parents had both worked off the farm. In fact, I grew up. With a farm, not on the farm. We actually, I actually grew up in Casanova, the town two miles away, and the farm was, I, I rode that two miles quite a lot on my bicycle, and then later in the little truck and car and stuff. But um, so I grew up with a farm, not on a farm. Hmm. Um, and the difference is that when you got on the bus in the morning, you didn't smell like cow manure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay. well, uh, and the bus uh, went from Casanova up to the regional high school, and our farm was one of the stops along the way. And um, uh, Anyway, it was a dairy farm, and uh, there was someone who lived in the house there, and all they did was milk the cows, and we did all the field work, and then they got every other weekend off. And that's how I remember the farm, you know, when I was younger. Um, went away to uh, college and, you know, different things in life. And where would you go to college? Uh, actually, Storm Lake, Iowa, Buena huh. Vista College, or huh. as they say up there, Buena Vista. Buena. Huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Played basketball for the Buena Vista Be- I still can't bring myself to say it. <laughs> <laughs> for the Buena Vista Beavers. Huh. And, uh, yeah, and, and had a wonderful experience there. Huh. And hunted pheasants up there, man. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we, in those Dickinson days. Dickinson County, Iowa. Yeah, in those yeah. days, we just went out and. And that was we blo- walked and blocked, you know, and yep. that, was, that was that was the epicenter of pheasant hunting at that time. Oh, I just I remember just being amazed by it. Mm. That we'd go for a drive and you just see big bunches of them. Mm. We'll we'll show you something like that this fall. Oh, see now he's got me excited. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Uh, hopefully I can still uh, shoot. Well, anyway, back to the farm. Yeah. So um, as I said, my great grandfather bought that property because of the timber on it, and huh. so we've managed. The, the woods has been very well managed over those years. Um, it's pretty interesting to see the, the, how that has changed over um, time and then, then be also be the steward of this generation. I cut my great-grandfather's trees, mm. Um, mm. which is a incredible responsibility. You cut them as in logged them? We logged them, okay. yeah. Um, 
in one mm. portion of, of 35 acres of a 240 acres of woods, we did a what was called a shelterwood harvest. Mm. And my dad was still alive when we started this, and and uh, he. Uh, he was interested in what I was, he was turning the management over to me, but that didn't mean that he was going to go along with everything that I, you know, wanted to do. And, uh, <laughs> we have, we have other, we have fathers as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's calls with the job. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm planning on being that way too. So. <laughs> uh, heck, my daughter would probably say you already are. Dad. You're already doing it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it was interesting because my dad said to me, I knew this had to be done. Yeah. But he grew up with those trees. Mm. He said, I just didn't want to be the one to do it. He did plenty of logging in other parts of the farm. But this was, they, these were, he was 92 years old mm. when he died. And um, so he really did grow up with those trees. And, and he was there for the first part of our shelterwood harvest, which, you know, is a uh, management technique to regenerate oak on, back onto the same ground. And uh, it's a... It's a, it's a real interesting uh, process to go through, but you have to have a long view of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I was up there working with uh, Mike Finley, who was the DNR forester that I was working with at the time, and he'd come to review what we had done in preparation for this first phase of this um, of this shelterwood harvest. And as we're walking out, <clears throat> we stopped and we just sat down on a, a stump for a while and, and, and talked about what we were doing. And he says, you know, I really admire the fact that you and your family are willing to take on something like this because mm-hmm. a shelterwood harvest, you really haven't looked forward a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that we're going to have those red and white oaks that we're cutting are going to be there Reach again, yeah. you know? Yep. And, uh, and it's very difficult. And it's a, 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 a uh, one of the species or, the oaks is a species that we're losing in the driftless area mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And uh, he says, I just really admire that you could have that kind of thinking. And in that moment, we're sitting there on that stump, and, and uh, it sort of came to me that, boy, I'm harvesting my great-grandfather's trees, my grandfather. I spent time in these woods with my grandfather, and, you know, I should say grandparents. And then my parents, you know, encouraged that and were wise about what they did and I really realized in that moment that this was just my turn and I, uh, or mm. our turn. And I said to him, well, I, I guess it's not ours. It's, I look at it, it's not ours. It's just our turn. And Mike looked at me and said, uh, you ought to write that down. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I did. Mm. And um, that's really become my conservation mantra. It was our, it's the theme of our, our, um, of our farm. It's not ours, it's just our turn. And our farm is called, our, our, actually our LLC is Matt's Last Tree Stand LLC. And that's named after my late brother, Matthew, who died. Mm. Um, 28 years ago now. Wow. And um, and so it's a legacy property. Property. It's a conservation property. And uh, so I started doing a little, you know, talking about it's not ours. Our, it's just our turn. And gee, I came to Pheasant Fest a couple of years ago with some merch, and I, yep. people had never heard anything about mm-hmm. this guy who looks like Santa Claus, who's <laughs> a meat eater, and uh, or anything like that. But they, the 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 saying really resonated with them and uh had a lot of people buy you know hats and you know gave stickers away and stuff like that and it's been uh so it's been really um gratifying it it does feel like something aldo or um sig olson mm-hmm. somebody yeah. would have said yeah doug duran said it well you can google that i mean Renella points this out you, see, you can google it's not ours it's just our turn and he goes you see pages of google stuff about doug duran and then a black hole there's nothing else <laughs> So it's you know it is it is something a phrase that I coined which is an odd I 
guess an odd thing, but I tend to think in bumper stickers, I guess. <laughs> um, it's not ours or just our turn. Uh, it, it fits on a bumper sticker. Another one that we did a couple of years ago with the uh, National Forest Foundation, um, uh, we wanted to help uh, after the, the forest fires out there to some of the replanting, and they had an initiative to replant trees. And um, I was like, I planted a lot of trees in my life. I used to work for a reforestation company. We planted a lot on the farm. And uh, and their memories. So I said, plant trees, grow memories, and mm. that became a bumper sticker too. <laughs> but um, mm. and and we sold um, uh, merchandise, and 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 the profits from that went to planting uh, uh, trees on the national forest. Huh. Um, you you're not the head behind uh, Woodsy Owl, give a hoot, don't pollute, are you? I that one's too good. That's <laughs> too good. <laughs> well, it, one thing you've talked about a couple times here that I think. Unless you grew up in a rural place, you probably don't realize this. And then what I'm talking about is a emotional connection that people have to a plant, to a tree. And, you know, I think we as humans can easily identify that with animals, right? This living, breathing animal, and you see this big Charlie, a buck, right? Yeah, and, you, yeah. and you create an emotional bond or that rooster that lives in your back 40 that you always hear cackling, right? Right. But... You know, that tree that was grandpa's, that yep. grandpa planted, you know, for people that live in, you know, I inner city Chicago, they probably like, what the hell are they talking about? An emotional connection to a tree. But when you, when you grew up and that tree grew with you, especially mm -hmm. I think about like trees that my nieces and nephews planted as little seedlings. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, when they come visit for Christmas and that tree is bigger each year and, it, you know, measured with their growth as, you know, youngsters to adolescents to adults. And there's an amazing bond yeah. to a plant, yeah. to a tree. It, it's incredible. And doesn't that take us to, you know, uh, conservation and why people should be why should be people why should people be concerned about mm. conservation how, how can we get people to be concerned about mm -hmm. conservation and there is that emotional um, bond that happened Leopold said something like I'm interested in two things the relationship of people with land and the relationship of people to each other mm -hmm. and um, hmm. part of part of uh, my ongoing mission is to is to try to connect more people with the land um you know leopold's land ethic is something that i believe strongly in and and you know you know where i'm from in southwest mm -hmm. wisconsin well the, the shack is 30 miles away mm -hmm. um i was just over there last week with my friend mark kenyon uh from meat eater and and he had not not been there before and you know it's 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 wonderful to take somebody there for the first time yeah it's it's interesting that. how powerful that is too it really is yeah mm -hmm. yeah i didn't you know i've always you know growing up around Leopold and his teachings and all that stuff and I was I'll go there sometime and finally went there and you're right you get there and there's just a power to it mm -hmm. like you pull up and all of a sudden you just calm and mm -hmm. relaxed and just there's something about that spot yeah and it for folks that you know read his writing I mean that shack exists mm -hmm. in the way it was left right and yeah. right down the across the trees to the to the rivers and I think about yeah. I mentioned Sig Olson. I'm really connected with Sig Olson's writing too in the Boundary Waters. Yeah. And same thing, they've they've kept his um, writing shed in the back of his house. Literally, the typewriter has his final words, and he went out for a snowshoe, had a heart attack, and died. Hmm. And uh, Isn't that interesting that both he and Leopold died of heart attacks 
in the outdoors. Leopold died at, I'm 63 years old. I found out the other day that I, I guess I knew this, but it didn't hit me until I was thinking about being 63. And Stan Temple, who was uh, a senior fellow at the Leopold Foundation and actually had Leopold's position at the university, uh, we were talking, we were doing a podcast with mm-hmm. Mark, and we were talking about Leopold because it's Leopold Week also. And he goes, you know, when Leopold died at age 61, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm 63. Have I got a lot to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just really uh, – and he uh, died fighting a fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Were you always connected with Leopold? Did you read his writing growing up, or is this more of a um, something that as you've been an adult and gotten more and more involved in conservation where you – found a new fun respect. Well, when I was in high school, I used to spend a lot of time in the library. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> I was trying to say that with a straight face. I, I was trying really hard. But um, <laughs> That's for you, Patrick Durkin. <laughs> <laughs> I, rem- I remember walking into the library and seeing the Sand County Almanac on the desk of the librarian. Uh-huh. And, uh, and she pointed to it and said, you'd be interested in this book. Because oh, she kind of knew yeah. what my deal was yep. that that I was um, I was an outdoors kid. Mm-hmm. I was one of those you know those kids. Is what we did, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, you know, in those days, you could drive your truck to school with a gun in it and mm-hmm. go hunting together after school and stuff. Yeah. And um, you know, and I was I, I, and I had been I had no I'd been in there for something else. Um, I'm sure there was some research project on uh, you know on the outdoors or something that I had been talking about. But she pointed it out, and I, so I remember that mm-hmm. and. Um, the, the, the Baraboo Hills, mm-hmm. um, and which of course the shack is right on the other side of those. Yeah. They're just, uh, sort of between us. And, um, that's where deer were first, um, uh, in our area. That's where deer actually came from mm. when I was, when I was a young man, <laughs> um, the deer were fairly rare. I know it's impossible to, for me <laughs> to not say it when I was a kid. Um, drink, um, uh, <laughs> Deer were a fairly rare commodity around us, and they were in the Baraboo Hills. Huh. And um, and Baraboo, you know, the Circus World Museum, mm-hmm. that's where we actually, when I was a kid, we went to a, the doctor there. And so that's really where, you know, Leopold was just somebody you heard about. But, of course, the foundation didn't start until much later, mm-hmm. but it was something, you know, someone you were aware about. And then the other the other direction, 30 miles the other direction, is Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin mm-hmm. and where he grew up. Mm-hmm. And it's those are two people, uh, very different people, right. um, but two people have had a um, in history that have had an influence on me. Yeah. And you can stop at the International Crane Foundation and hit the trifecta. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something Just skip in the water. The Dells. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, well, when I was in high school, I went to the Dells fairly <laughs> often. Thirty mile drive over there. Yeah, yeah, it was great. So when folks hear Doug Duran. Five years at Pheasant Fest in a row. There's probably a little bit of a head scratch because they identify you particularly with Meat Eater as whitetail guy. So sure. I want to ask a couple questions related to that because you, you have a pretty interesting broader perspective than uh, as to how you manage your land for habitat. So when when people say, why are you at Pheasant Fest, how do you reply? The, when... Pheasants Forever started talking about being the habitat organization. I was drawn to that hmm. because on our, I don't manage for white-tailed deer. Um, our management programs are based on wildlife habitat, on on 
Well, I, I, I honestly, I work with, even though I have a background in all of this, I work with professionals on every, everything from NRCS folks to Pheasants Forever folks to, you know, professional foresters and DNR foresters. Um, and I'm, we're interested in, um, not just me, I'm including my whole family in this, we're interested in the quote-unquote best thing to do and white-tailed deer do fine everywhere. Mm. Good forest management is good white-tail habitat management. Good wildlife habitat management is good white-tail habitat. Um, Pheasants Forever is the habitat organization. Mm. Makes nothing but sense to me. Right, right. And that's something, you talk about having all those acres in CRP too. You know, that's something that, you know, we we always talk pheasants, quail, ducks, um, geese, right? But boy, Hell of a lot of white tails are created in CRP across yeah. the darn. Country. Well, here's a meat eater story. Yanni, uh, Yannis Patelis and uh, his dad and his brother and a bunch of these Latvian mugs from up by Potoma, where he first um, started hunting, came down. And because uh, I invited him down with him to you know, get some deer. And, and I said, hey, Yanni, it's, I'm telling you, man, you go out in this CRP, it's like hunting pheasants. With their, you know, they're, 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 he goes, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, you'll see. He said, well, let's go. So we go out there, and no joke, he no more than walked into that CRP, and a buck got up and took off. I'd like to point out that he missed. <laughs> um, and, and he goes, I almost didn't shoot because we're shooting at a running deer. He says, I'm not comfortable with that, yeah, but it was yeah. close, and I, you know, and I knew what we were trying to do. Sure. But he's like, oh, my gosh, it's full of it. Um, it was full of them, and, and um, I remember one time where I went up, uh, and the, again, the Driftless is a lot of contour strips, mm-hmm. sort of that quintessential Midwestern, you know, a 40-acre field is a big field, and if it is, it's on a slope, and it's got contour strips all through it. And when we put it to CRP, um, I planted, uh, you know, sort of traditional um, um, grass species, um, I'm sorry, hay species in uh, in a lot of it. Then we did these uh, prairie strips, and but those prairie strips is what we're holding holding deer. I mean, they're sort of everywhere in there. So I'm walking along the edge of this one, and it's this long, like 600 yard uh, strip, and I'm walking along the edge. Of, well, I'll get, I'll, be, I'll get a doe in here somewhere. Mm-hmm. One, one will pop up or whatever. I go about three quarters of the way around it, so I'm like 400 yards into this this 600 yard walk, and this coyote comes out of the woods and he kind of looks at me and he ducks back into the woods. And when he did, a doe and her uh, fawns came out and they, and I was like, oh, okay. So they, they come up behind me. And as they stepped out, I shot the doe and down she went. And all that I had walked by, 15 deer had jumped up. Wow. They just, you know, the way the wind was and everything, it was that, that cover was mm. so heavy that they didn't, either they, either they didn't know I went by mm. Because I'm just very stealthy when I walk. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but and the wind was just right. Or <laughs> but but that shot, man, they were up, and it was just remarkable to me. So you know that kind of. I mean, think of all the benefits that mm-hmm. we're getting from CRP. You know, the yeah. wildlife habitat, the bird habitat, the 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 water quality. You know, slowing down erosion, all of those things. And and so mm-hmm. why can't I, I'm interested in managing for multiple benefits from one well, action. And, and, you know, in preparation uh, for this conversation, I see right on your website you have some, some acres enrolled in pollinator habitat yep. through CSP. Yep. And that I'm assuming that's in the last five years that you've probably done that or more recently. Yeah, CSP has only been around for Matt. It's been around in its current form probably about seven, eight years. It's been around for about ten. Right, but I was gonna. Th- I was there was a run where it was something different. It didn't work as well. My and second contract is, and it's a five-year contract. My second contract is ending. 
So in the first contract, we did pollinator habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second, I did um, uh, creation of edge in, in our uh, woods and some feather edging along the edge of the fields. And in this third one, and oh, and some tree and, and uh, native tree and native shrub planting. And in this third one, um, I'm really looking at more pollinator mm-hmm. habitat. I've got a chunk of um, like two acre parcel that's I've just been kind of goofing around with waiting yep. for and that's probably the direction i'll go yeah. have you seen a wildlife response from that oh the, absolutely yeah. yeah um i i, I mean I'll, I'll love to get out there and see the grasses and forbs and everything mm-hmm. that's using them it's you know it's i mean it's, it aesthetically is i mean it's the other benefit right. of it right right um and you can hear it too yes. right right which is different than like you, you walk in that in spring and you're like whoa this is a lot that's something i love to do take groups out Mm-hmm. And we'll go through a stand of just grass, and I'll stop them. Okay, everybody, quiet. Let's listen to what's going on, and it's it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear people. That's nice and quiet. Mm-hmm. Then we'll go over to a pollinator area, like right adjacent to it, and stop. And let's be quiet. And you can just hear a buzz yeah. and just yeah. birds, electric. birds, and yeah. yeah. And I'm like, isn't that a little bit better? Mm. Yeah. Um, CWD. You you are known as a very outspoken force for for battling chronic wasting disease in whitetails why should like me i'm a dyed in the wool bird hunter you know i haven't i honestly haven't deer hunted since i was in college i got dogs and if i'm not following those dogs i feel guilty leaving them behind you know so i just care about you know sharp tails and prairie chickens and rough grouse and, and quail and pheasants why should i give a rip about cwd well, I, I would guess that you consider yourself a conservationist, and certainly chronic wasting disease is one of the biggest conservation challenges of our time. No doubt. Um, and don't we want a, a healthy uh, community, uh, wildlife community, uh, ecosystem community? So, of course, you should uh, concern yourself about that. Um, the other part of it is, I mean, you begin to think about <clears throat> the same land that you're walking around on, mm-hmm. and that if it's it's occupied by deer, now you have a diseased animal out there right. that... Of course, we haven't. There hasn't been any um, um, species jump at this point, but um, you know that's something that sure we looks consider. like there's possibility. Yeah, there it really does. And, and so think about that with your dog and 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 you know your exposure to it and all of that. So, um, I mean, I just it's it's one of those. It's just the right thing to do. Oh, and it transcends. Yeah, right. right? The other thing that I think about there's a lesson there for folks um, as, as an analogy with bird hunting. You know, you folks that want to, a quick fix by releasing birds, mm-hmm. you know, and you think about what CWD on the landscape with disease has spread. Like you release a bird, a pheasant that has avian influenza, mm-hmm. right, from a, a pen. And then you release that and it gets into the wild population. Oh, boy. what's going to happen? Right. Right. So if yeah. we can focus on habitat, right, disperses everything right. through good right. quality habitat and can minimize or mitigate spread of disease right. no matter it, what disease you're talking about and short-term answers aren't are never the solution to a problem it, it's a band-aid approach where if you do the habitat like you said earlier doug plant some crp and you have pheasants around now you know, the beauty of them is they're so prolific you get out there get the habitat they're going to come and mm-hmm. they're going to come fairly quick, so you get the fruit of labor from that, and it's a long-term. That whole idea of short-term, uh, of, of short-term thinking, and, and I guess that was sort of, you know, destroyed in me by growing up the way that I did. And that whole idea of the past, the present, you know, to the future, um, 
man, if we're not concerned about CWD, we should we should be because it is about the future. Right. So. Yeah. 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 It's back to all those lessons about um, how we treat the land and the animals and where our food comes from. Right. right? Part you of a community. About, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Part of what you're talking about on the stage is another Doug Duran uh, catchphrase. Tell us about that. Right. Well, it's called Sharing the Land, and it's an a access initiative that um, sort of grew out of Leopold's um, Riley Game Cooperative. And, uh, you know, I'll ask people, do you know who Aldo Leopold was? And, of course, oh, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. And the uh, father of conservation, modern, you know, and uh, have you ever heard of his Riley Game Cooperative? And there's a lot more, hmm, no. Well, Riley... Tie it into pheasants. Riley is a, a town um, slightly south and west of Madison, big uh, bottomland uh, grassland. And uh, as the story goes, um, Leopold was out um, looking for a place to to hunt, and he ended up happening upon this farmer and asking permission. And the guy's name was Reuben Paulson, and and Paulson said, you know, I I'm sure you can hunt and. But I'll have to tell you, we have trouble with trespassers out mm. here. And, and Leopold goes, well, yeah, I could see where that would be a problem. But, you know, I, knowing who he was and how you know he had introduced himself, he said, but I also, you have some habitat issues here. Mm. So what he proposed was that he and his friends would come out um, and they would do habitat work. They actually paid the um, farmer's kids to uh, to grow chicks and, yeah, and, and yeah. they released them out um so they did habitat work in exchange for access to that land huh. and they also helped with the trespassers sure. um and so what uh i've always been fascinated by that idea mm-hmm. and, and my father was someone who I, I he was my hunting mentor and hunting to him was not a solo pursuit it was something that you did with other people mm. and um and that's one of my favorite parts of hunting is the camaraderie and the, and the cooperation, the collaboration that, that results from it all. So um, bringing the, game, the Riley Game Cooperative forward, we came up with um, an idea called sharing the land. In that, it's a, a very similar to things that used to happen years ago. Well, I, could, I just knew that guy. I could go over there and knock on his door. And I, there, were a lot, there was a lot of land around me. I, I used to be able to hunt when, when I was a young man. And, uh, and my friends and I, and of course, we knew everybody, sure. right? We were all farm families and stuff. But now in our area, 65% of our land is owned by people who don't live there. Hmm. 95% of the land is privately owned. So if we're going to do anything about conservation, it's going to be done on private land in a lot of, hmm. lot of areas in the country. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed in my consulting business is that especially new landowners and those, those newer landowners, people bemoan, oh, there's people from away buying our property. Well, they tend to want to do good work on their land, and they don't have large parcels of land. Mm-hmm. So we have all these wonderful access programs, uh, the VPA programs yep. and, and the walk-in programs and that sort of thing, but that's not really appropriate for an 80 or 100-acre place where people might have a cabin, and, and uh, that's their place. That's their recreational that's property. That's their recreational property. The number one thing that a new landowner says to me after I work with him for a while is, man, this is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And my response is, you like some help with that work? Well, we all know that there's programs and opportunity available. You still have to get that work done. Mm-hmm. And we also know that one of the biggest impediments to getting involved with uh, the outdoors and hunting is access. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, with sharing the land, we're bringing that idea forward that people will exchange 
um, work and uh, a contribution to conservation hmm. in exchange for access. And we formalized it because there's issues and mm -hmm. concerns. We formalized agreements and we have uh, access seekers develop a thing called a conservation resume. And the landowner does a cooperating land profile. And then we match those people appropriately mm. and uh, give them the opportunity to meet. And then hopefully they'll develop their own uh, cooperative. And we're really uh, announcing it for the first time here at uh, cool. presenting it publicly for the first time here at Pheasant Fest. So if people that are listening want to learn more, is there a website? Where there they can sure go? is. Sharingtheland.com. Okay. Sharingtheland.com. And you mentioned um, it, it, um, it's not ours. It's just our turn. That's right. Um, I know there's apparel. Where do people find apparel? Oh, that's on well, <laughs> that's on DougDuran.com. So these are two separate things because Doug Duran will probably go away when Doug Duran goes away. But um, I'm hoping that what's going to happen with sharing the land is that um, this is a this is a something with the eye to the future. Okay, cool. That that, that we, as this develops, that more and more people will develop cooperatives in a way that makes sense now. Okay. And isn't it? To me, it's just fascinating that Leopold saw all this all those years right, ago. Right. The interesting thing, though, was that access wasn't a problem in those days. It's the n the number one issue that when you talk to new hunters and new access people is, is, is you know, is access. And um, in our area, and a lot of areas east of me, access, you know, like public land can be really intimidating, mm -hmm. mostly because of some of the public land users and how they, you know, do it. And then people don't want to go there and necessarily squirrel hunt because there's somebody bow hunting in there or, or rabbit hunting, you know, and, and all of those sort of things so if we have a access program where a landowner control can control it um vpa um, i know some states have, you know they they can control things uh, pretty well but in our state um you, you sign up for bpa and your land just ends up mm. getting open to the public it might just yeah. be for turkey hunting um or or for everything but um i've actually refereed some issues between uh people who are accessing that land and neighboring landowners um so we're we're you know, trying to do this in a more cooperative and thoughtful way. And uh, if you go to Sharing the Land and take a look at, um, you can sign up for our um So is it available anywhere in the country? Well, is it like that's the plan. Match.com for landowners? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I got to put it in words. I know I'm, yeah, very, no. but <laughs> for landowners and people looking for opportunities. Yeah. To, yeah. And our, the idea is, uh, again, we're just starting this and it, uh, we've actually been working on it for heck three years, I guess, but, um, mm. or, and longer. Um, uh, I talked about it in Schaumburg. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked yeah. about the, the idea. How about this as an idea? And mm -hmm. there, the feedback is what kind of ended up. And then we've had this last two years that had been so weird that um, um, mm -hmm. sort of putting it together and getting it off the ground and then really expanding the experiment on my own, mm -hmm. uh, our own property. Um, we had 40 different people hunt our farm last year. Really? And all of them made a contribution to conservation in some way. They didn't all do something on the farm. Mm -hmm. um, one young man is on our conservation congress. That's his, conser his, his contribution. Mm -hmm. um, other people that I let access the farm came and took an antlerless deer. Mm. <laughs> and that was a contribution as far as I was concerned mm. because we have a population thing. But those are also the, the first people when, when you have someone like that that you know and you trust. It's a relationship you have with yeah. them, right? So yeah. somehow we have to continue to develop those relationships between people um and it's a hard thing sometimes for somebody to knock on a door and ask for permission hmm. um so this is you know it's 
Match.com is probably our appropriate <laughs> way of putting it. Swipe right, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so we're working on we're working we're working on that, and we're not. Uh, yeah, and and just to, to to be clear about it, we're keeping people's uh, information uh, uh, confidential, and we'll actually do the man make some suggestions. Okay. And then uh, that's how they'll figure out whether they can work together or not. And there's an agreement involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that everybody's protected, some of us hold harmless, and then of course we should make some uh, some suggestions about insurance too. Okay. Yeah. Sharingtheland.com. Yeah. yeah, I just look at it. It's it's not just the landlord gets the benefit of somebody doing the work for them, but it's also the beauty in it is those folks that are from town more than likely that don't have that connection like we do to the land, a piece of property, and getting out and seeing the work. That goes into birds don't just happen. Deer don't just happen. Mm-hmm. It gets those folks actively engaged in it and gets them to think deeper about hmm. the work that those landowners do to have those populations and healthy populations to hunt on. And I just I feel like it's just this idea and this concept so can open up a lot of ideas for those. And even too. if someone um, is just interested in foraging, for yeah. instance, I was, mm-hmm. I was telling uh, you or maybe read the story earlier that um, in in one case, um person was just interested in foraging and they really know mushrooms. Landowner didn't know anything about mushrooms. Mm. I mean, other than morels. Everybody knows yeah. a morel, right? right? You can't right. screw that up. Um, well, you can't. Yeah, guess, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> There's one. <laughs> but anyway. Right. Um, Chantrells so, or something, oh, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. Oysters, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hen of the woods. Yeah, pheasant, yeah. Pheasant, pheasant backs. All of those. And this landowner's like, sure. Mm. And uh, it goes out, and now all of a sudden, that access seeker is educating the landowner about what else is on his property mm-hmm. or their property to be able to, to, to you know, be in more involved. So it's collaborative, it's cooperative, um, and the other thing that happens is, you know, in, in other programs, and 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 I love those programs. I mean, I, don't get me wrong; I'm not disparaging any of them, but we know what the landowner gets, like from a VPA, he gets mm. a payment, mm-hmm. or she gets a payment. The access seeker gets access. What's the land get out of that? Well, there is the habitat improvement stuff mm-hmm. that can happen. Mm-hmm. But, boy, we with something like this, they can work on that habitat improvement together. I actually had a couple of people come out and help me with um, timber stand improvement work. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to do some you know, some other projects with my folks, too. But And people just – I had a uh, – one of the people that that accesses my property um, it, it didn't really spend much time in the woods before they were just a hunter, right? Literally, and that was how they described themselves. I was just a hunter. I said, "Well, what was your favorite part of you know being a part of this? The days that we've gone out and done stuff together, mm-hmm. because I'm learning about it." And you feel a sense. Of, I'm thinking it's not as like what you've done is formalize something that does exist right mm-hmm. in in places and i think about a friend of mine tim kraske who's a volunteer for pheasants forever in brown county sleepy eye minnesota and once a year he invites people down to his farm to you know chop cottonwood trees that are invading right, right? And, and help remove trees so can um, intact pr- protect the in- integrity of the prairie right and then you go, he invites everybody back and during pheasant season and you go hunt. And it's a different experience when you're hunting. You're like, yeah, I, I have exactly a, right. a little emotional and personal yep. investment in this property now. I don't own a lick of it, <clears throat> but I helped. And, and when you see a bird, it's like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no, and that's fantastic. So the, the, the idea that that... Um, Access seekers got some skin in that game, mm-hmm. you know, makes nothing but sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but this allows 
um, a, a landowner, number one thing the landowner will say when they start talking about that is, what about liability? Mm-hmm. I want to I I know who's on my property and what about liability? Yep. And this addresses that. Yep. And we yep. t- you know, that's, you've got to go to the website and, and read about how we're, how we're working on that. All right. Sharingtheland.com. Mm-hmm. I know you got a presentation coming up. Coming up. So mm-hmm. three times this weekend. Three presentations. Yep. Five o'clock today. Two. Two o'clock tomorrow. And two o'clock on Sunday, I think. Yeah. It doesn't have to be right, is it? It isn't live radio. Yeah. <laughs> Ballpark that. Ballpark that in there. <laughs> Wait a minute. What do you mean it's not live radio? I thought this was live. Okay. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, one of the things as I prepared for this, I'm like, oh, you know, he, Doug's been interviewed by the, the, the best podcasters out there, right? Joe Rogan and uh, Steven Runella. What question can I ask that he hasn't been asked? So, so I'm going to ask you that question. What what question should I ask you that those guys never asked? Uh, the first one would be what kind of things am I interested in <laughs> outside of <laughs> conservation? Well, because I know the like, Grateful Dead. Well, right. You know, well, and that is that really is it. Music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, Me too, I, man. I'm a bit of a hack guitar player, but um, <laughs> I went to the Hound Dog Taylor School of Music. I can't play very well, huh. but it, it sounds good. Um, I can't play as the expression goes, but it sounds good. Um, and so I play and I really enjoy that. Um, and, um, uh, do open mics occasionally even get paid to play. Um, and, uh, just really, um, all kinds of music, just enjoy all kinds of music. What's your wheelhouse? Uh, you know, Dylan, the blues, uh, a little bit of Grateful Dead here and there, but usually it's Grateful Dead cover songs, um, that songs that they covered. Um, uh, yeah, you know, songs. Some of them you can sing along with. Some. Uh, what I like to say at open mic is that I will uh, play some songs that you uh, might know in such a way that you won't recognize them. <laughs> Were you at Woodstock? <laughs> no, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'd have been a very young man. I'd have been 10, 11, 11 years old, I guess, had it been the case. <laughs> and you teased me uh, with you wanted to talk about Ricky Vaughn, the wild thing from the Major League movie. So you. You definitely got me intrigued. What's the connection there? So it's, it's funny because you, you know, what what other things can we talk about? And and then I realized I remembered your connection to baseball, and and I thought, you know, uh, you'd be interested in that. So Ricky Vaughn, mm-hmm. wild thing, major league, uh, was modeled after a uh, relief pitcher for the New York Yankees, whose name happened to be Ryan Duran. Huh. Was my uncle. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. The whole, the whole uh, <clears throat> Coke bottom glasses. I mean, if you look up Ryan Duran, you'll 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 see the references. Charlie Sheen even talks about it. Huh? Um, in and what era did he play for the Yankees? Oh, he played with Mantle and Ford and those guys. Yeah. Wow. So, if you know the Golden Age of Baseball, um, if you remember, Billy Martin was a little bit of a problem in the Yankees, mm-hmm. and he got traded. He got traded for Ryan Duran, who was a relief pitcher. No yeah. kidding. And uh, they huh. brought Ryan in, and they didn't know what trouble was because Ryan had the same problems that Billy had. And uh, yeah, he wow. was uh, very, very proud of my uncle, um, not just for his baseball stuff. He played in the major leagues for ten years, and he was really the, one of those first late-inning relief, relief pitchers. Um, beat the Milwaukee Braves in the 1957 um, or 58 World Series, and um, huh. and uh, you know was the winning pitcher as, as a reliever. Um, and the whole time he was also uh, an alcoholic, and uh, 
and which so he fit in with the Yankees. That fit right yeah. in with Mantle. Yeah, yeah. And those guys. Yeah, and um, but the the thing was is that eventually, after baseball and after having hit the bottom and mm-hmm. gone through all that, he uh, he um, dried out and uh, became uh, the the director of a um, alcohol and drug rehabilitation program in Stoughton, Wisconsin. And when people would hear my last name. They would say any relation to Ryan Duran, and I'd go, eh, you know, and they go, hell, he really helped my, my dad or my wow. brother, or you know, and, and those sort of things were um, later in life. Um, it was, you know, it was real important. Um, I found this and back. and what I'm particularly um, uh, proud of, uh, yeah, of him that's for that. awesome. Yeah. That's um, World Se- does he have? A, is there a World Series ring in the family? Yeah, well, Ryan, Ryan has passed, but yeah, yeah. The, yeah, there's a World Series ring in the, in the family. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't know that story. Well, now you do. Now I do. <laughs> I got others, but we're going to save those for the next time. Yeah. Well, we'll save those for the pheasant hunt. <laughs> I, I do have some funny Ryan Duran stories that you'd, you'd love to hear sometimes. So we'll have to talk about <laughs> Maybe it. Maybe over a beer this evening. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much for, for doing the podcast, but most importantly, thanks for uh, being at National Pheasant Fest and Quill Classic. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm. Uh, uh, it, it's just uh, very gratifying to be a part of this organization and in, in this event. Well, beyond, you know, just being here, just talking about conservation on the platforms like Meat Eater and, and Rogan's podcast, you know, and it's criti- critically important to have voices like yours and the places. So thank you for, for standing up for, for Habitat um, you know, on, on all those different platforms, really valuable. Matt, I didn't add much, but I was here. Yeah, that's, that was, I love having you on, man. We'll do another one. Uh, oh yeah. Um, for folks that know you're the state coordinator for South Dakota, give us and North Dakota and North Dakota. So, so, so as we record this, March 11th, um, you know, the pheasant destination of the country, the Dakotas. Give us a um, a winter 2022. Uh, quick, quick hitter report. Well, it's so it's it's tailored to two different states actually, because South Dakota we don't have a lick of snow. Um, I'm actually getting a little bit concerned again that we're gonna have a a tough spring if something mm. doesn't change. We have zero snow on the ground up there. Mm. But you go up to North Dakota, especially that western half, then that Fargo. Tough country. spring because of drought. Just drought, dry. Okay. Um, okay. You know, new seedings and stuff going in. It's gonna, if some if we don't get some spring rains, we're gonna probably be on the podcast talking about droughts in July again. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. That's the worst podcast I ever have to do. But yeah, so the good news is winter mortality is gonna be extremely low in South Dakota. Okay. Um, so I'm, we're setting up. If we get that moisture, we're gonna have a heck of a year again. Okay. Um, North Dakota, it sounds like that Red River Valley, as always, has got quite a bit of snow in it. Mm. Um, then the western North Dakota's got quite a bit, too. So I don't, I haven't heard any reports of mortality going on yet, but if it drags out, that could be an issue to watch. But for a lot of the state, we're at average, so okay. that's good. So North Dakota's sitting all right there. Um, um, final question, and that's, this, is, this was the second year of South Dakota's hunting season extending the length of January. Yep. What's your impression as a South Dakotan? Are you seeing hunters take advantage of that, or um, a lot of know, locals? Locals are taking. Yeah, advantage. It, you don't. It's you don't see. A, you get past Christmas, you don't see a lot of non-residents out there. Hmm. You don't see a lot of locals either. I mean, I love it because hmm. I get a chance to go. You and I have talked about this in the past, where after Thanksgiving is when I start getting serious about pheasant hunting. I really like those years when you can wear snowshoes and get out and go after it. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's I like it. I enjoy having that January season. We've been all right with weather and all that stuff, so it's been a positive in that way. I really feel like. So when would the best time for a fat old man from Wisconsin <laughs> to come out? <clears throat> We were going to target, you know, between that after Christmas to the first week or two of January is the time to get out there. I like it. I'll get in shape for it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's kind of the, the sweet spots right there. It's usually not too bad, not too cold. You get that little midwinter warm-up. Yeah, yeah. But there should be some snow on the, enough snow on the ground where you know where the birds are kind of going to do something. And gotcha. Yep. If you go out there too early, they're scattered everywhere and – you end up spending all day walking around, which is fun. I can mm-hmm. still like it. Sure, sure. My favorite time is that after post-Christmas time. I just love so, the So Because they're really concentrating in areas. They'll, they'll concentrate down a little bit. Sure. Um, you can just – I just like the time of year. The snow on the ground. Yeah. It's cool. You're not sweating. Yeah. And hunting pressure just hunter falls pressing off the table. Gone. So you're just kind of out there on your own. It's more you – know, you just feel like you're out – you're not hearing all kinds of gunshots, and it's just – a peaceful time to be out there just walking around and nice the deer are all settled down from deer season so you're seeing deer doing their normal thing it's just a fun time to be out there cool fellas thank you very much appreciate it uh excited to get back on the show floor uh folks uh if you're listening to this uh expect more podcasts from national pheasant fest and quote classic i'm gonna Knock down as many as possible over the course of the next couple of days. But um, Doug Duran, Matt Morlock, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. I am Bob St. Pierre thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Maybe I should uh, put that on a T-shirt. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> thanks, folks. <laughs>